Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Thanks, Eric. Good morning. I hope you guys are doing all right. Uh, Let's see, do we have EGC this morning? We do. So uh, first and second grade is going to be back here with, I believe, the Bannon crew. Uh, They're back there. That's first and second grade, third, fourth, and fifth. You'll be looking at the uh, New City Catechism. You can follow a responsible adult, which we do have a few of those. Uh, And then the rest of us are going to stick in here and almost get to the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, uh, Let me start with some news. Um, uh, For Kaylee Thornhill, Kaylee's in the back, back here, raise your hand. Kaylee is now going to be, uh, for a few months, on the office at Seek Refuge email that you email in and ask all your hard questions and be like, hey, what's going on? What, who's in charge of this mess? How is this take place? I have questions about whatever, whatever, whatever. Don't email me because I mostly don't know. Kaylee is now going to be in charge of that because little Edwin Thomas Ebrecht made his appearance into this world on Thursday the, is that the 18th? 16th? I knew it. Don't trust those. Uh, 315, 314, 7 pounds, 8 ounces, 20 inches long, Ryan and Tracy, their little beautiful little boy. Yeah. And he does have a head full of hair, uh, and uh, he, he is filling up what is lacking in dad and uh, with his head full of hair. It's, it's a bald joke. Um, and uh, Sorry. Ryan didn't like that joke either, probably. Um, but we're excited for them. Um, also, just continue uh, to be in prayer um, for, we just, we have a number of, uh, of things going on, um, just some health stuff happening, and uh, we want to continue to be in prayer for uh, members at Refuge uh, who are uh, just dealing with their health issues um, and praying for healing. What I want to do this morning, I want to start in Matthew chapter 4, and we're almost going to get to the Sermon on the Mount. Then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll we'll, uh, we'll get going. I'm reading my own own text this morning because it's got some city names into it, in it that I just decided I would would butcher instead of asking somebody else to to take those on. Uh, Matthew 4, starting in verse 12, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 15, this is what the prophet Isaiah says, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time, then Jesus goes and he calls his disciples. That's the only part I skipped over there. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A thing you're going to hear more often throughout, well, you hear it a few times throughout Matthew. And then verse 23, oh, skip down to verse 23, David, did I tell you? Yeah, I told you that. All right, cool. So that's where I skipped, sorry, that's where we skipped the calling of the disciples. And he went through, Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, yeah, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Lord endures forever. We changed that about a year ago. So, uh, But you can also say thanks be to God. That's all. That's appropriate as well. Um, we're going to continue on in our Almost Sermon uh, on the Mount series. We're, we're, we're getting closer. I promise next week we will be in the Beatitudes. Um, this week I want to start with a poem. You know what? Let me pray first. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit scattered this morning. We've had several things going on. Uh, my, if you'd be in prayer for my family, my sister had a seizure this morning, and it's not new to her, but it had been well under control, and so that, that just is really uh, kind of causing upheaval, and my wife's out of town, and which is not good for me anyway. Uh, so um, let me pray, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll go. God, thank you that you are present. Thank you that you, uh, your, your promise to your people is never smooth sailing. It is never that life will be easy. It is never that life will be without pain. It is that we are called to be dependent on you, the God who created the universe, who promises to never leave nor forsake his people. So may we be in your presence. We ask for healing. We ask for uh, comfort to those who are mourning um, and uh, that you would be your presence to those who are anxious uh, and that we would uh, rest in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this morning I want to start with a poem, uh, and it is perhaps, uh, at least from my perspective, probably one of the most famous non-Shelf Silverstein poems in all of history. Uh, you will recognize this, I guarantee, the road not taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair, having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there, had warned them really about the same. Both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Everyone together, you know this part, right? Two rows diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I thought you guys would know that better. I didn't expect like shouts and cheers, but at least like engagement. All right. Uh, this poem has been referenced at 83% of all high school graduations since its publication 
in the Atlantic in 1916. I totally made that stat up. Um, but it's probably low, right? It's probably more than 83% of high school graduations. And we all know what this poem means, right? We've heard this poem a million times. We all know what it means. What, what is the essence of this poem? Go your own way, right? Take, don't follow the crowd, right? Wrong. Wrong. It's actually not what this poem was intended to mean. Robert Frost uh, lived in England. He lived next door to a wonderful friend of his, Edward Thomas. Not to be confused with Edwin Thomas uh, that, Ryan, that, uh, that the Ebrecht just had, but Edward Thomas. Thomas was also a poet, and they lived next door. Their families lived next door to each other, and they would take long walks together. They would talk poetry and life, and then World War I broke out, and they often talked about in their paths, and they're walking along these paths, if they could hear like they wondered if they would go f close enough to enemy territory where they actually could hear shots fired and perhaps explosions. Um, and as the war grew, eventually uh, Robert Frost would take uh, their youngest son, the Thomas's youngest son, and their family would head back to the safety of New Hampshire. The plan was for the Thomas family to follow them back pretty soon after, buy houses next to each other, grow old together, their families living in the beauty of, and safety of New Hampshire. Now, Thomas, he was a, a native Englishman, he was, uh, but he was a poet, right, he, uh, and a romantic. He was not a nationalist. He refused both to see Germans as the ultimate evil and to see, he also refused to see his fellow Englishmen as pure saints. But he still wrestled with his own courage and debated in his mind over and over again if he should, in fact, enlist in the military. Um, his life was actually wrecked with indecision. And everything he thought, he thought again. He thought over. He rethought. Up to and including which path to take on a simple walk in the woods. And any time they would take a path, he would say, well, maybe we should have taken the other one. So in writing correspondence, his friend Robert Frost wrote a poem without a note to explain the context, thinking it would be self-explanatory, helping him make a decision in their long walks. Thomas would lament often that he didn't take the different route, or maybe they should come back and see what this one had and what they may have missed seeing or what they may have avoided. Frost would chalk this up to the romantic disposition of crying over what might have been. And so his poem... It has been misinterpreted from the very beginning, even by his friend, Edward Thomas, who is actually, it's his fault that this would end up being published and become so famous because he misunderstood it. He was not writing in this figurative language. It's actually very, very literal, kind of chiding at his old friend. Pick a path. Pick a path and then walk and stop being so paralyzed, but well, maybe we should have done this. Or what if we had done something different? Just pick a path and go. And so, again, it's a quite literal poem, as intended by Robert Frost. And this is uncovered in their letters back and forth. When you listen to the last line, if you read through the poem again, you'll see it. I shall be telling this with a sigh. <sighs> Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads, 
Diversion of wood. I took this one. And we walked. And that made the difference. It is not this figurative grand whatever. But literally, since day one, it has been misinterpreted. Now, there are things that can seem very, very obvious to us. Uh, especially when we read the Bible, when we read it in our own lens, we take it in in our own understanding, uh, we read it from our own insecurities, our own experiences. Uh, I had a seminary professor one time, he's a church history professor, and he, and he waded into some deep theological topics, which I don't know if he was quite ready to wade into, but nevertheless he did. And, uh, and he started his monologue by saying, listen, uh, and this was, this was on, uh, this was uh, in, the, in the discussion of free will and God's providence and uh, all that stuff, that a, a discussion that should have great nuance and care if you're going to have it in a sem- seminary class, if you're going to have it anywhere, but especially in a seminary classroom. And, and he starts off his monologue by saying, is, is that the Bible, and you definitely should not be having these discussions. You've got to know more than that. This morning, what I want to do, I want to give some context to Matthew's gospel letter before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. As it relates to, and, and really specifically as it relates to the prophet Isaiah, you're going to hear Isaiah mention it's the most quoted in the New Testament and especially in Matthew. Um, why is he writing? What history is he bringing up that will be both clear to the people that he is writing to and also very confusing to the people he's writing to? But they know what he's talking about. And why this matters to us when we read the Sermon on the Mount, especially uh, the words of Jesus. Um, And I I do want to say that uh, I had this kind of mapped out, and this this has taken a turn this week. uh, So it's one of those weeks that everything kind of got got rewritten. Um, And uh, so we're just going to kind of uh, walk our way through this, uh, if you'll be patient with me and, and, uh, and follow along here. Now, when I look at the history that Matthew is writing to, and I look at the prophecies fulfilled, and Matthew is, is writing to his own people, he's writing to the Jewish people, and he's going to use things that they're familiar with, and we need to be careful uh, that we don't misinterpret it as if Matthew was writing to contemporary America, okay? Um, I find this stuff fascinating. I find it interesting um, to look at the context, uh, but I don't want to simply walk through this because I find it fascinating and interesting. Uh, I want to walk through this because I do think that this can be very, very helpful. And you might be thinking, well, we're not, we're not Jewish, so why does this matter to us? Uh, which, is a good, which is a good question. Um, but I would, I would again say that I think learning and knowing um, the context that Jesus was speaking to, that Matthew was writing to, uh, this is important for a number of reasons. One, we have a propensity to take and use and misuse often the words of Jesus to fit the narratives that we believe, the narratives that we have preconceived. And so knowing the context that he's writing in can be helpful. Um, I think this can be helpful in more fully understanding what Jesus has accomplished and what we are called to in response. The more conversations I have with people, the more I hear this overbearing uh, sense of guilt and shame Uh, when it comes to Christianity, which Jesus says he bears. Uh, And so I think it's it's critical that we begin to understand from that perspective how we are called in response and what does that look like. The things that we're supposed to do, the things we're not supposed to do. Um, 
But I also think uh, that this is also critical because sometimes we, we hear things and we, and we kind of have very binary thoughts. Um, Jesus is not calling, and nor is Matthew compelling, to a different religion. Sometimes we hear, uh, and, and you've probably said this or heard this, right? The call of followers of Jesus, we are to be a called out people. We are to be different from the world, right? Amen? And times we, a lot of times we think that and we think, this is the world over here. This is man's way and we are to be over here, God's way. Tim Keller still gets me every time when he says, and the people of God are not just supposed to be distinct from the irreligious. In fact, the gospels are written to a people that are called to be distinct from the religious. And that's critical. That's critical. Understanding who Jesus is talking to. This is not a call for you and for me to be more religious. That's not what this is. This is not a call, and again, we'll, we'll reiterate this over and over again. Jesus is not coming to say this is how to get to heaven when you die. Jesus comes and he says, follow me. And he says, if you, for those who hear my words and put them into practice, you'll be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Um, I think this is critical in understanding that. Matthew is writing to compel his own people not to become a different religion, but that actually Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole, this whole religion, this whole law and prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has been said throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and what, the way that he writes, he writes with what is important in his culture, the things that he and they value and understand. He starts with lineage, right? If you've ever read Matthew 1, he starts with lineage. And we look at that and we're like, uh, okay, so-and-so begat so-and-so, uh, big deal. Uh, in my family, I know like, I, I remember the names of my mom, of my grandma's, uh, my, let's see, my, see how good this is? My paternal grandma's parents, the Falters. I remember that name. Uh, everything outside of that's sketchy, like outside of like grandparents and my immediate cousins. My wife's family, however, like I am amazed that they go, they talk about their fifth removed great aunt from their mother's side that was like the first pilot in Missouri, or if you could fly at that. I don't even, I don't know, because I, I kind of start to tune out. Um, or their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma who got thrown over 100 yards by a tornado. And, uh, and this teetotaling family, she had a shot of whiskey to deal with the pain. And uh, that that's often ends up the main point of that uh, story. And um, uh, they have like some fifth or cousin that's like on Missouri's Most Wanted something. It, it, they know all these names. It is a high value in her family. Uh, Jewish culture, lineage was everything. This is how you're validated. This is how we know you belong. This is your family structure. And like we, if you've ever read the Old Testament, we talked about Leviticus being trouble, right? Leviticus can slow you down in your reading plan. After Leviticus is numbers. I mean, you want to talk painful. That is a whole book of who begat who begat who begat who. And yet, the story of God, especially in Jewish culture, is who begat who begat who begat who? How has this seed been protected? 
What families that flow down? How have these been divided? It's huge. Matthew includes that uh, in, his, in his gospel. Um, Matthew also presents the birth of Jesus, and he talks about them having to flee to Egypt, having to flee the oppression of the Roman emperor and flee to Egypt. That's a story that many of his people will remember and recall, and the great irony that they are fleeing to Egypt. Uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in the story of Scripture. This is uh, when, when Matthew talks about Jesus' temptation out in the wilderness. This is the recalling of the story told over and over and over and over again in, the, in uh, the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the story of creation, the story of temptation, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Israel. It's told over and over again, except this time, this time, the one who is tempted does not give in. That's a significant difference. Even the concept of the Sermon on the Mount, we see in Jesus the echoes of Moses. The mountain itself is absolutely significant for the people of God. This is where God invited his people to meet him. And so when Jesus goes on to the mount, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. I don't know if it's a different sermon. I don't know if these are excerpts from different times. I don't know. But for Matthew, you better believe that he is conveying a picture. When Jesus says he walks up to the mountain to talk to them, that is the invitation to meet with God. Um, and much of what Matthew tells centers around the book of the prophecies of Isaiah. At the time of Jesus, uh, we, are, we are given the idea that Isaiah was the primary text that most people of God had learned, that it was being taught and memorized. Jesus references it often, one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. The most quoted book in the New Testament. Psalms is a close second. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet. He was uh, near the end of Israel's reign as a kingdom. He prophesied to the rulers and the religious leaders this warning that if they continue on in their idolatry and their injustice and they're turning away from God, that God's judgment is going to come and that as a nation they will be destroyed. That if they do not turn, uh, that's the first 39 chapters, a lot of the first 39 chapters, uh, that their rebellion, their idolatry, and their unjust treatment of the poor and the outsider, uh, that judgment is going to come against the nation of Israel. But, but that that won't be the end. There will be a remnant. There will be a one day that a king will come from the lineage of David and restore and establish forever the kingdom of God. And of his reign, there would be no end. Now, this is written while Israel is a kingdom. And so listen, I'm going to tell you, there's not a chance that anybody in that day understood fully what Isaiah was saying. Nobody, nobody thought, okay, so he's going to come and restore, like in a spiritual sense, we're going to have a Messiah that comes and gives up his life. Like, no. When they heard kingdom, they knew what they, this is what kingdom looks like. He's going to come and reestablish the borders. In Jesus' day, they were oppressed by Rome, by Rome. And so when you hear this idea of a Messiah coming, the forecoming king, the one that was told about from the lineage of David, what did you hear? We're going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Israel, one day, once again, 
will be in power. Um, what happens often, everywhere, and it, it, what God intends is often, often misinterpreted. We get the benefit of hindsight, and we still often misinterpret. What does it mean that God says he's going to come and he's going to reinstitute the kingdom of God? Two cities that we see in the Old, in, uh, in the Old Testament. The city of Jerusalem is, is supposed to represent the city of God, a city without limits and without boundaries, a city without a nationalism or a nationalistic race or ethnicity. We also see the city of Babel right off the bat. The city of Babel is the city of man. It has boundaries. It is for us, not them. It is established on our power and our greatness and our achievement, not God's. And so we have these distinctions of what the city of God will look like, and it rarely looks like what we want to do. So here's where I'm going to finish this morning. It's going to take a little time. Um, bear with me. I know it's a long weekend. I, I didn't take that into account. Um, Here's where I'm going to bring this this morning, um, and it, it's, it's a little unexpected. It's a little unexpected for me. Uh, I want to lay out, there are seven themes, seven characteristics. Glenn Stossen, who uh, used to be a professor at uh, Fuller University, talks about seven themes that you can see in Isaiah in the verses that talk about the reign of God and the kingdom of God. There are seven characteristics of the reign of God that Jesus actually fulfills beautifully. Um, and I want to bring out those seven characteristics and then we're going to look at them more and more and more. We'll keep those at the forefront of our mind as we walk through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But I also want to give it immediate application. For how to see this in our day. And this, this is the part for me that it is, it's uh, maybe unexpected. Um, but it's actually been kind of a pleasant surprise. Uh, Many of you have probably seen or heard or talked about or read about the, uh, the um, revival that has been taking place in, in Wilmer, Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University, right? You've, you, you may have seen or heard or read. I'll give you just a, a brief glimpse. Last Thursday, a week and a half ago, uh, a speaker in chapel, nothing, nothing huge, nothing dynamic, uh, actually without the assistance of fog lights and and uh, fog machines and lights, which if revival can actually take place outside of fog machines and the light show, wow, <laughs> right? Um, say he won't do it. Uh, this guy preached a, a message, called to repentance. About 15 students stayed after chapel and just stayed in the chapel and prayed and repented, sought God's face, and they stayed there for a little while, and before they knew it, maybe 15 more students came back and they began to pray. And then it went overnight, and then reports started trickling out. I've, I've been following this for a week and a half, and, and then more people came, and then more people came, and then the, the chapel would fill up, and then people started pilgrimages, and a group from Mobap went, and, and other people. Now you're seeing it at Samford University and a couple of other universities, and this revival is breaking out, and um, it seems to be uh, primarily among college-age students, um, and uh, revival throughout Western history, revival has always taken place within a certain context. 
a definitive cultural context that this awakening, the pouring out of God's spirit brings things uh, to light in this specific context. Now, um, I've had a, a few people have asked me about it, and, and, and here's my response. I, I don't know. I'm not there. Um, I don't, I push for us as a people to constantly and consistently walk, try to walk in the presence of God. Um, the history of revival, revivalism, all that kind of stuff, um, I, I know a little bit about. Um, I want to operate with wisdom. I fight cynicism all the time, so I definitely want to fight it here. But I, but I also, like, this is not my job to police it. It's not my job to police it. It's not my job to market it, manipulate it, try to overdo it. And it's not my job to dismiss it and say, ah, whatever. Man, may it be. Are there going to be people that manipulate it? You bet. You bet. We hashtag things like nobody's business. And that's when it goes downhill. Are there going to be people who dismiss it? You bet. I, oh, my heart grieved on, between that and the he gets us ads and watching my pastor friends have to police everything, I'm like, shut up. Shut up. Leave them alone. Sorry. Um, so I don't know. But I read an account. Uh, the, I, I read an account, I don't know, it was yesterday or Friday, that really hit me. And I thought it was beautiful. And it really hit right with what Isaiah prophesied about experiencing the kingdom of God. I thought it was beautiful. It made my heart just long for the day. Um, so, one of the professors at Asbury uh, Seminary, um, one of the theology professors, uh, made the comment that what is happening there among students and faculty, that they are experiencing a small window into the life and kingdom which we are all actually fully called into. I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. So, enough qualifications. Um, the account that I read was a guy who was reluctant to share. Uh, you may have seen it. It's, it's certainly making the rounds uh, in social media. But what he shared to me was very helpful. So I want to help. I want to list these seven characteristics of the kingdom, of God's reign that Isaiah gives. And again, we'll flesh these out more of what Jesus, how Jesus bears these fully uh, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I also want to observe from this, from this post some of the observations at Asbury that I think are beautiful in God's kingdom making its way not in the ways that we, are ex that we would typically expect. All right? And then, and then I'll ask us as we go through these, if you want to write them down, you can. We'll, put them, we'll, we'll, we'll make them available or whatever. Um, but uh, I will ask as we go through each one of these, there's seven of them, I think I've got five points, I've, I've combined a couple, but um, I would just ask each of us, when we hear each one of these, that our hearts would be prayerful, that God would make these known to us. If you're fighting cynicism, that's like, uh, I don't know, be aware of that, all right? You're, you're on my team. Be aware of our hearts fighting, fighting cynicism. But if you're also going, this is it, this is, this is what America is, it, drop that too. Because God is not concerned with our kingdom, he's concerned with his kingdom. This is his work. It's not for us to manipulate or fashion or fit into our things. 
All right? So, um, the first thing that we see in Isaiah, God's presence. We often see the presence of God shared uh, in the concept of spirit or light. And of all of the ways, there are 17 areas in Isaiah that, God talks, that talks about God's presence in the reign of the kingdom. Um, Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall be the moon give you, uh, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. This is from the account at Asbury. I come from a spiritual background that has left me weary of hype in a culture of spectacle. I've grown tired of disingenuous representations of divine work. But it is clear God is moving in a surprising and transformative way. However, when you think of revival, what comes to mind might not be what's happening. For me, me, personally, I grow weary of triumphalism of the Christian life. The claiming and then never to suffer again, uh, that can often breed a sense of pride or arrogance. God's light is not given for us to judge against others, but for us to hope. It is not given for us to show how much better we are, but to show how hopeful redemption is. Jesus ushers in God's kingdom, declaring that he is light that this is received in humility, not arrogance. God, may we experience your light as you work in us and through us. Second, Isaiah refers to deliverance or salvation. This also occurs in every one of the references in Isaiah to the kingdom and reign of God. 43, the people of God have been in exile. Isaiah prophesied the second half of, of Isaiah, verses four, uh, chapters 40 to the end. It's thought that these were scrolls that Isaiah wrote and sealed, and his disciples years later after uh, Israel came back from exile opened these up and read these words. There's lots of theories on that. Isaiah did not live a couple hundred years, um, but this is how that was probably unfolded. But Isaiah 43 says this, Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. From Asbury. It feels as if God is personally meeting young adults in ways meaningful to them. My generation was formed differently than previous generations, and so the traits of this revival are different than revivals of old. The new outpouring is not the signs and wonders, nor zealous intercession, nor spontaneous tongues, nor charismatic physicalities, nor visceral travail. 
It is marked by tangible, by a tangible feeling of holistic peace, a restorative sense of belonging, non-anxious presence through felt safety, repentance driven by experience kindness, humble stewardship of power, and holiness through treasuring adoration. For me, God's call and redemption, this is what makes me both skeptical but also hopeful. God's call and redemption is not a political movement. It is not a cultural movement. It is not an assimilation into the religious way of life or of doing things. What we will see in the Sermon on the Mount is the call to follow and trust Jesus and become this community of the Messiah, of people who have been with Jesus. What starts out good in our day can so easily be hashtagged and marketed and commandeered by corporations or political parties. And hear me, the salvation of God and the kingdom of God will have none of that. God, may we experience your deliverance and salvation and the temptation that comes against it. Lead us not in that way, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, not ours. Third is the peace of God. The peace of God is never the absence of conflict. I think sometimes when we think peace, when we pray for peace, we pray for the absence of conflict. Never in history has the peace of God been the absence of conflict. One day, it will be the triumph over, but it's always been the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 17 and 18 says this, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. and Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, uh, instead of wood bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters, righteousness. Violence shall be no more, uh, shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. From Asbury, this account says that the revival is seeing a tangible sense of peace for a generation with unprecedented anxiety. We are the wealthiest and most prosperous and least threatened, most protected generation in the history of mankind. And anxiety and mental illness and addiction are eating us Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not us pursuing personal happiness. Peace is the presence of God. And these, I'm a little off script. My daughter is an RA at a Christian school. And the things that she has dealt with, uh, with the girls on her hall, are heartbreaking. If you have a child that's Gen Z, the world is 
or, or, if you're, or if you are, it is ruthlessly just preying on every possible anxiety. And what's happening in this outpouring in the presence of God is they're experiencing peace. God, in our anxiety, show us your peace. Lead us away from distractions. Help us to see our false coping mechanisms and come to you and to one another. Healing and joy is next, that the reign of God will be marked by mo- both joy and healing and a return to the way God designed the world to be. Isaiah 35, two through six says this, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. At Asbury, what the account says this, a res- that we're seeing a restorative sense of belonging for a generation amidst an epidemic of loneliness and an authentic hope for a generation marked by depression. We live in a world of unintended consequences. All of our devices and technologies, the greatest achievement of mankind designed to connect us have left us astoundingly isolated. And this is a generation that was birthed on the screen and to the screen. God's presence calls us out of isolation. His promise to never leave us nor forsake us declares war against our loneliness and our best attempts to create our own means and methods to meet our needs. It is not lost that Jesus' first act of declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand was to heal the diseases and the afflictions that isolated people. We need healing. We need the joy of God's presence and our salvation. God, make it so. Next is that God's kingdom is seen as a return from exile. Jesus marks this as a repentance and return to God. Isaiah 35, 8 through 10 says this, A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Asbury has been marked by a focus on participatory adoration for an age of digital distraction. In our day, we often don't experience the joy of repentance and forgiveness. Um, 
there's kind of a war over this whole thing that's really awkward to me. We're being taught more and more not to actually deal with our anxieties, but just kind of let people know so everybody else can walk around them. And uh, we just seem to be fed more and more distraction. And when we have more distraction and more false coping mechanisms, that just compounds the problem. Versus generations prior, which is we treated with the medicine of just suck it up and get over it, um, which is also not good. Repentance is actually facing our junk, owning our sin. Don't add more junk by just distracting and coping, but actually bring it into the light and practice trusting God and one another with our hurts and our wounds and our sins and all that stuff. And let shame, let shame be put to the side that we actually as a community of people pointing one another to repentance and forgiveness. It is both granting and receiving Christ's forgiveness that we would grant to one another and actually receive it, returning to God as the author of hope and salvation and not just taking everything out and distracting ourselves until one day we die. Jesus, in your presence, may we be present. May we turn from our distractions and our coping mechanisms and may we turn to you, the one who forgives, redeems, and restores. And then finally, justice. Uh, and, and I'll say this just as a, as a caution for all of us. If you hear justice and you get more excited about this one or you get more suspicious about this one, um, I want you to let your excitement and, or suspicion direct you toward humility and looking at the necessity of all the other aspects of the reign of God. All right? You get me? Don't let bitterness or cynicism win the day here. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Um, I over, that he talks about this as the faculty and some of those making things happen at Asbury, that there's a leadership emphasize, emphasizing protective humility in relationship with power for a generation deeply hurt by the abuse of religious power. Church history is replete with power that corrupts the church. When the name of God is used for personal gain and for personal glory, this is the very heartbeat of taking the Lord's name for our vanity. A movement of the Holy Spirit does not simply wash away and pretend that an abusive history and all of these things that have been covered up and made known, that it just somehow doesn't exist anymore. If anything, it is a calling this to account. Man-made religion seeks to grow churches and institutions in the, in the realm of Babel. Man-made boundaries, man-made rules, man-made marketing skills. Uh, and what we've seen is humans protecting man-made institutions over and above even in the face of horrific abuse and oppression. 
I think God is raising up a generation in the face of and in spite of this. And I, and I want to tell you, I believe in the church. I'm a pastor. I'm here. There's other ways to make more money. I've heard people say, well, the only reason you stick with us is because of a paycheck. I mean, they haven't said it to me, but listen, there's other ways to make a whole lot more. I, and I know there's guys out there that are abusing the system, but I, I got a lot of friends that are not doing this for the paycheck. I mean, I'll just tell you that right now. Um, and refuge is kind to our family. I don't, don't want to let that. I believe in the church. Uh, I am extremely suspect of the church industry. If you saw how many emails I get for how to grow your tithe, how to engage population, how to put big old huge screens with live action feeds on the back, fog machines, light shows, all the things that we can do to make your experience of Jesus this much more awesome uh, to make the gospel that much more powerful. I think that's something that's been cool, seeing the pictures of the, of the, the stuff going on at Asbury. Yeah, there's not a light show in the, in the, in the works there. Um, salesmen and thieves, overzealous lust for power and influence, buildings and ministries and presentations and movements come not for the sake of the sheep, but at the expense of the sheep. I've experienced this many times. A church will never be big enough for an insecure pastor. God has promised before he can raise up stones. He does not need us. And yet, in the history of the American church, far too often, leadership has chosen self-protection and self-promotion over truly restorative justice. Jesus, you judge the heart. You plead the cause of the poor and needy. You have promised that if your people are with them, then you are with us. All right. I have a practice for you this week if you want a, a bit more study, but honestly, just praying in these elements that God's kingdom, uh, of God's kingdom might be enough. Um, there's some stuff for GCs. There's videos on Isaiah to watch that and see how those both kind of give the view and the vision of, uh, of, of Jesus as he comes and then blows out of the water any expectations that God's people would have had in the time of Isaiah. Uh, but simply preparing our hearts and minds um, to walk through how Jesus will bring this to light in this new kingdom. Um, and let that mess with our presumptive thoughts and leave us joyfully dependent on Jesus. Uh, so, um, what Jesus is going to do in his sermon um, through Matthew's words is he is going to invite us into this citizenship and this participation as kingdom people. A people that are not marked by religion or irreligion, but a people who have been with Jesus, his, have experienced his grace and renewal. And whatever your fears of the other side might be, well, yeah, but there are some rules. Yeah, there are. We're following him. Ah, but it's not the rules. No, you're right. It is grace and mercy. Like, whatever your fear of the other side and somebody else's attempts to justify it, let, 
Let's let Jesus deal with, with us and with them. Be careful correcting people that you don't love. Um, and Jesus is going to invite us to experience, and he's going to mess with us a lot. Um, and I pray that this may be said of us as we hear the good news of Jesus proclaimed on the mountain. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Let's pray. Jesus, I have, I have no idea how clear any of that was. Um, my hope and my prayer for my own heart and for our hearts is that we would be both humbled and given confidence. Humbled that we cannot bring about, we cannot manufacture things in your world and that we are not called to judge the hearts of the living and the dead. All of that belongs to you. And yet, what we're seeing here is that you had, I don't even know the word, the audacity, the, 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 the plan, the, you, you walked in uh, amongst your people. You walked into the temple, read from the prophet Isaiah and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, I pray that as a people, we find that both humbling and give us confidence. Undo our ways of thinking the way of the, way the world should be. Um, and may we be a people reflective of what you have called us to, to participate in this kingdom that you're ushering in and all the joys uh, and all of the ways that this overcomes our anxieties, our fears, our insecurities, our suspicions, our cynicism, our hurts and our wounds. Uh, continue to make yourself known. May we walk in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.